The Saudi recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, August 27, 2017. The speaker is Pete Williamson. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Looks like you guys have the same regard for time that our church does. It's good to see you all here. When we first got here, there was nobody here, and that's all filled in after a fact. It's not a rebuke, just an observation. Um, it's good to be here. It's a privilege to be here. Um, I've known Sam for a long time, really, since... Um, before I think we got started as a church even, uh, through Acts 29, and have had the privilege of watching both Damascus Road grow and then Restoration Road. Um, Been in this building several times and seen it grow and develop over the years, and so it's exciting to be here. And as Andrew said, I mean, in some regards, I consider this sort of Oikos South because we've given you some of our best people over the years. You're welcome. If you want to return the favor, we'll gladly take it. Um, But it's, it's a sort of homecoming as well. So... It is a privilege to be here this morning. Um, my wife uh, and a couple of my kids will be here later on. Cheryl, you'll get a chance to meet her if you're going to be at the picnic afterwards. I've got four kids, three of which are teenagers, and the last one is 17 months. So um, been very blessed. Um, very tired, but very blessed. But uh, hopefully you get a chance to meet them as well. My text for this morning is Matthew 5. I'm going to read the first 12 verses uh, of this verse. This is a section that we've been going through in our church over the course of this summer, the Beatitudes. Um, I'm going to single verse 9 in particular out, but I want to give you this whole passage just for context. So once you find it, if you would stand with me as we read from God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the friends, brothers, and sisters that we have here, um, for the history that you've given us with this church, and for the work that you're doing here. It's a privilege to be here this morning to serve them. Lord, I ask for your blessing on the preaching of your word this morning, for your help in preaching with clarity and with conviction and passion, but also, Lord, that you would give us open hearts to receive what's there. Lord, this is a holy book. These are holy words from a holy God. We receive them with gratitude at your mercy, but but a humbleness and a fearfulness because we are sinful. We need your help. So we ask for your help this morning both to understand and to apply your word to our hearts and to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Every now and then, uh, in preaching through a series, there are moments where God providentially brings together uh, events in the world with what we're going through. And so you don't even really have to work to be topical. It just kind of falls into your lap. Um, this sermon is one that I preached, uh, I, I preached on this passage last week at our church, and it was, it was, again, providential that it came in the aftermath of what happened in Charlottesville. 
And that's, I mean, as I was thinking about that this morning, I'm referring to something that's only two and a half weeks old, but I wonder how many of us have already moved that to the background because, you know, football season's coming up and school's starting and there's lots of other things that are far more immediate and interesting and the like. I mean, we had an eclipse for last week, for crying out loud. Um, but, but the events of Charlottesville, I, I, I hope that we as Christians, we as the church, keep in front of us because they signaled something to us about what's going on in our country. Um, it's easy for us to distance ourselves from that. I'm a native Northwesterner. I grew up and went to school in inner city Tacoma, so I, I don't understand a lot of the forces that threaten our country, a lot of the things that were on display and what we saw in Virginia. Um, but that doesn't exclude me from having both the responsibility and the need to know how to respond to that. And I hope that we, as Northwesterners, we as the church, don't wall ourselves off from the world as though it doesn't matter or it's not our problem but somebody else's. I hope actually that it troubles us, that it disturbs us, that it, it weighs us down. There's a reason why the church in history cried out to God, Maranatha. It's because they felt not just their own sinfulness, but the sinfulness of the world, the pain of the world. And one of the things as we've gone through the Beatitudes that I've been pointing out to our people is that Jesus is defining here, not just in the Beatitudes, but in the whole Sermon on the Mount, if you want to know what a disciple means, this is it. Here is the program of discipleship. And as you start to go through, you realize, one, this is really hard. This is really difficult. This is really challenging because these all touch on things that we don't normally gravitate towards. Blessed are those who mourn. I mean, we come to church to be lifted up. We come to church to be affirmed. We come to church to be told to be happy and to rejoice in the salvation of God. Amen to all of that. But we often do that at the expense of having a real heart that both mourns for our own sinfulness and the sinfulness that we see around us. Daniel prayed in, in Daniel 8 on behalf of his people, confessing both his sins and his people's sins, knowing that they angered God. We live in a day where we, it's easy for us to say that's not our sin. I don't have to own that. The Bible speaks much differently about how we are to view ourselves and our connection to both the church and the broader people. We should feel that. So in effect, I see the Beatitudes in part as Jesus saying, if I could borrow imagery from the Wizard of Oz, giving the heart back to the Tin Woodsman, meaning the church. We need to have that heart again, and I think that's expressed here in this, this verse on peacemaking. Before I go any further, though, I want, I want to bring in another story. In the days that followed the events in Charlottesville, I, I stumbled across some articles online uh, from the Atlantic Monthly about a man named Daryl Davis. Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L. I, I highly encourage you to look this person up. In fact, he's in a number of different articles, especially over the last few months. Daryl is a blues musician from Maryland. Um, played with the likes of Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and Chuck Berry, very, very skillful keyboardist. I've seen some video of him playing and a wonderful musician. But he's a man with a, an unusual hobby. Began back in 1983. He was playing at a bar in Maryland. He's from Maryland itself. He's playing in the, a particular bar with his band. And afterwards, after the set, uh, one of the patrons there called him over and said, I've never heard anyone play Jerry Lee Lewis like that before. Where'd you learn that? It's like, well, as a matter of fact, I, I was taught by Jerry Lee Lewis. He's one of my instructors. And the guy was amazed and, and, and said, you know, I want to I follow up with you on this. I want to hear more about you. I, 
Mind if I invite you over to my house sometimes? I said, sure, no, no problem at all. And so they did that. In the course of the conversation, the man said, the man looked a little bit awkward. The man who was talking to Daryl, it looked a bit awkward. And, and he said, what's, what's going on here? He's like, well, truth be told, I've never really had a conversation like this with someone like you. Um, I may have forgotten to mention this, but Daryl was black, or is black. And, and this man, turns out, was in this area a high-level official in the KKK. This was a white bar that he was playing at. And, and it began this conversation in which Daryl wanted to start engaging this man, and, and what grew out of that was a series of relationships and friendships with others in the KKK of all levels, going up to the highest level. And, and his desire in that was to put himself in the path of people that he felt hated him without reason. How can you hate me and people like me if you don't even know anything about me? So his purpose was to go to them and get to know them and allow them to get to know him so that so we could understand each other. Because he, I mean, he was, you know, obviously he's part of the black community. He understands all the forces, all the pressures, all the thoughts, all the fears and hatred and all that stuff going on. He was criticized by both whites and blacks alike. But, but as he engaged these people, these relationships started to turn. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But it's a remarkable story in and of itself. There's, um, there's a, a film that just came out this last year. I'm spacing on the name now. I should have written it down. If you look up Daryl Davis, you'll find it. But, but it's one that I, I want to see that basically tracks him with this, this conversation he's had with all these different white supremacists, the enemy. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. I, I think there's something, there's a connection there between the two. So as I said, Sermon on the Mount is one that describes Christian discipleship. These are the common characteristics that are to define every believer without exception. These are not simply, you know, if, is, uh, to go back to blessed are the mourn, that's not simply for those who in the moment happen to be mourning, but that disciples ought to cultivate a, a habit, an attitude, a spirit that mourns for things like sin, for things like suffering. And you can go down the list and look at the others. I, we don't have time to get into all the different ones, but... but this is for all of us without exception. It's a total change. It's a change both of an inward parts, a different understanding of ourselves, an underserving sinner saved by grace. Not just saying that, but really drilling down on what that means. But also an outward change. Different set of attitudes, different set of behaviors. A Christian, in effect, is called to be a new creation. That's no surprise we know that. It's something that we both must become Blessed are those who mourn, but also something that God is making of us. If you go back a couple chapters, when Jesus is calling these disciples to follow him in the first place, what does he say to them? Come, I will make you fishers of men. That is both what you must be, but that is what I'm going to make of you. So as you follow, these are the things that you desire. These are things that you embrace as a disciple, but these are things that Christ is also promising to work out in us. What if I don't mourn? What if I'm not poor in spirit? Follow Christ and he will make you that. So we should strive for these things now. But at the same time, we shouldn't be discouraged when we fail. 
which we will. Our, our failures, in fact, are, as important, are an important means by which God does perfect us. So many Christians today, they're afraid of failing. We, we gravitate towards a gospel that, that there, there's some who gravitate towards a gospel that seems to take out any of the commands of Christ and say, those aren't really for you because they were perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. So don't worry about it. But Jesus doesn't speak that way. He says, this is what you must be. This is what you must do. This is what you must think and say. Not because you're going to be able to do it perfectly yourself, but that is what he's teaching you. In that, he's teaching you to both depend on him, to be humble, but he is also growing you in that. So, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? First, I want to note that the word itself here, it's the only time this word appears in Scripture. The, the word places the emphasis on action. Peacemakers. Which means that Jesus doesn't want us to be ones that simply enjoy peace, but are the ones who are initiating it, seeking it, being, being the ones who are starting the process, entering into those situations where peace is absent. Peacemaking, when you think about it, is at the heart of the gospel. You want to drill down to the bottom, this is where it comes from. Peace, shalom. Is one of the defining traits of God's kingdom. And its disruption is one of the defining traits of sin. Sin disrupts the peace, the order. Not just the absence of noise. Don't, parents don't think like parents. It's not the absence of mess or the absence of noise or being able to sleep into the you know, reasonable hours of the morning. This is where things are as they ought to be. In all aspects. That, that wholeness that defines God's kingdom and one which sin disrupts, perverts. And the whole purpose then of the gospel was to restore peace to God's creation. The gospel was intended to bring peace between God and man. We know that. We see that. That's the work of Christ. But it was also intended to be bring peace between men. Let me give you a couple passages. I like to throw out a lot of passages uh, just to emphasize a point, but also to give you some other witnesses from Scripture. A couple here from Paul. Colossians 1.19. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul became, I, Paul, became a minister. But the work of Jesus there was not simply to save, but to reconcile. Salvation isn't simply being set free from your sins. It's cleansing you from your sins so that you might be reconciled to God because sin makes you unholy. And because you're unholy, you cannot close with God because God is holy. So the forgiveness of, the sin, of sins is only the first step in God's larger purpose of bringing him back to himself, restoring that fellowship with us and beyond that, welcoming us into his home, into his family calling us them brothers and sisters. But in doing that, he's reconciling to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. And Paul carries this thought further in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But those same two motions there, I hope you see, are, are in place. One, Christ is reconciling us, humans, to God, but he is also, his work is also meant to reconcile us, who are separated from each other, to each other. But both those movements are happening in the gospel. This understanding then in turn helps give shape to what we mean by peace. Peace in light of the gospel is relational peace, reconciliation. What you mean by restoration road is not simply making old things new, but making things what they ought to be, including relationships. Though that kind of peace involves such things as grace and mercy, which are not just nice, vague words that Christians throw around a lot, but, but, but point to the fact that we as Christians are initiators because God has initiated in grace and mercy toward us. We take the first step. We step out into the unknown. We go into the dark places. It also means repentance and forgiveness. And then lastly, restoration back toward unity. But it's important to have all those three in place because it's easy for us to separate those out and hold on to just one of them. We're just going to be a grace and mercy church and just have vague feelings of goodwill towards other people. Or we'll, just, we'll stop at forgiveness and say, well, I, I forgive them in my heart, but I don't want to ever have anything to do with them anymore. It requires this whole suite of actions, grace and mercy, repentance and forgiveness, and restoration back towards unity. That is the sum of what peace means in the Scripture. That is the kind of peace we are to be making as his disciples. If that's what Jesus came to do, it's fitting, therefore, that Jesus' followers carry on that great work. So what does that look like? Well, there's, there's a few ways that we can separate this out. First of all, peace me, peacemaking means reconciling people to God. Evangelism. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Have you ever read it that way before? That's our responsibility now, to bring people to God together, to restore that relationship, to tell them how that must happen, 
to explain the circumstances by which they are separated from God and why it matters. That is, Paul continues, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We must not preach a gospel less than that. The gospel is not good news for the sad and the lonely and the empty. The gospel is good news for those who are separated from God by their sin in every circumstance. And the purpose of Christ dying on the cross is to bring those people back to him, that they might be with the God who make, made them and loves them and desires to be with them. Let's not settle for less than that. Peacemaking with regards to God also includes bringing wayward Christians back to God. James 5.19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, brothers, if, any is caught in any trans if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this is all leading somewhere in terms of what that means for us. I'm, I want you to just hold on to those thoughts for a moment, but I just for the moment want to show that, first of all, peacemaking has to do with how you know, helping people be restored, be reconciled to God. That is part of our calling as disciples. You can't escape that. Peacemaking also means reconciling people to each other. First, that we would be peacemakers in the church. I'm going to give you a whole list of verses here just to emphasize this point. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, just let those phrases hang there for a moment. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. How low do we set that bar for ourselves? Good. I get to define how, how far I get to go with this. Paul seems to be going in the other direction. How much can you do this? How far can you go? And I've just laid out to you gospel of Jesus Christ by which we are made righteous before God. How far are you willing to go to live at peace with each other? How far was God willing to go to make peace with you? Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's, that's not a matter of indifference. That's not a matter of accidental or coincidental kind of activity. That's a purposeful function. Your role as a Christian, your role as a part of a church, as part of a larger body, calls you to pursue, to make effort towards, to strive to make peace, to strive for those things which make for peace, both in positive ways and also in removing things that get in the way of peace. That is our responsibility as Christians. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Matthew 18, 15. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We cannot reduce that to simply a bare process with how we deal with difficult people. The heart of what Jesus is telling his disciples is, when someone sins against you, exhaust every means to be reconciled to them. I mean, doesn't he say as much later on in the Sermon on the Mount? If you or your brother has someone against you and you're coming to offer a sacrifice, what are you to do? Wait until you have some time free in the calendar? You know, Mariners are playing today, it's a big game, that might get in the way, or, you know, we have family, we have family plans already, we have this vacation planned. I'm in a good moment, I'm in a good frame of mind now to worship God, I don't want to dredge up all that garbage that's going on. Jesus says it would be better for you to lay the sacrifice down and go and be reconciled now. Strive for peace with everyone. We're to be peacemakers in the church. But we're also called to be peacemakers in the world. I think that's what I see and what what strikes me about Daryl's actions with these KKK members, these racists, he's doing so as a Christian. He says as much. He's part of what he sees as his calling as a follower of Christ, to engage them, to understand them, that they might understand him. I'll continue on with him in a little bit here, but, but I want to get to this next point. What does it take then to be peacemakers? Well, we have to face the fact that this isn't going to be easy. I think we're all feeling that resistance internally now. If this is true, I, I'm hoping you're thinking, if this is true, then that means dot, 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 oh no, I hope this isn't true. Because most of us prefer peace through avoidance of conflict. I told my church last week, I, I think we're less North American in this way than Southern Canadians. We, we don't like conflict. We avoid it. It's not easy. It's not fun. It doesn't work out well. It goes, often goes bad. I don't like the feelings that arise in me. I don't like the high blood pressure. or all, I don't like any of that stuff. I don't like the yelling. I don't like the fact that I might actually be wrong. So it's easier to stay mad. It's easier to unfriend off of social media, isn't it? It's nice and clean. Those things are easier. Peacemaking requires us to be initiators, and we are not naturally initiators. Except for the things that we like. I think I'll have a cup of coffee. That's, that's a great start. I think I need to go re reconcile with my wife. I'll let her come to me. Peacemaking, moreover, requires us to involve ourselves in the lives of others, sometimes whether we've been invited or not. It's a big barrier. We, we have a high value, do we not, in our culture, a private space. That's none of our business unless I've been invited. That's a tough one. I want to get my, stick my nose in where it doesn't belong. 
But sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes you actually may be the one. That's why we let, we're so easily willing to defer to somebody else. This is a situation that I see that needs to be dealt with, but I'm sure there's somebody else that's willing to handle it. Because we, we don't want the backlash that will come from that. Or maybe, maybe it's because we believe, like many in the world do, that's impossible for people to change. Have you considered how tragic a sentence that is when people in our culture are considered beyond the pale of changing? Whether it's alcoholism, whether it's sexual addiction, whether it's lying, cheating, you know, whether they're politicians, what have you. When we, there are times where we will, as a culture, say that person will never change. That is the way they will always be. Have you considered how hopeless and bleak a sentence that is? You Christians who have been saved and transformed by grace. What if that were true for you? It'd be crushing, wouldn't it? It'd be crushing. And so we leave it alone. So how do we do this? What steps do we take? Martin Lloyd-Jones has written a fantastic commentary. It's actually a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that he says with regards to this verse, I think, is so valuable because it really cuts to the heart of what's going on here. The first step in being a peacemaker is self-forgetfulness. We, we tend, if we're not aware, to make our Christian life, to make our understanding, our value of the gospel, even our worship, self-centered. Don't we? Do I like this? Does this please me? How does this make me feel? And if we start asking those questions with regards to the call to be peacemakers, we will not be peacemakers. We need to forget ourselves. We need to entrust ourselves to another whom we know we can trust will care for us, who will have our backs, who will address the wrongs that have been done to us in the process. But we need to be selfless if we are to be peacemakers. We need to be willing to take things that are hard to receive and even unfair to receive. We have to disengage we have to disengage that, that, that hardcore desire and passion for justice being done to us because you will be wronged. People will say all manner of evil against you in the process, and you have to be able to absorb that in order to do this greater thing. It's not about how I am left feeling, but whether these people can be brought back together again. It's the greater aim. But in order to do that, you have to be self-forgetful. You have to love the other more than yourself. Second, these, the next few come from what Daryl Davis describes as his own approach in dealing with, uh, with these KKK members. In fact, let me read you something here. The most important thing I learned, this is Daryl speaking, the most important thing I've learned through this is that when you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. That is a 
wonderfully profound statement, and I think it has everything to do with this passage that we're dealing with. The most important thing I learned is that when you are actively learning about someone else, you're passively teaching them about yourself. So, if you have an adversary with an opposing point of view, give that person a platform. Allow them to air that point of view, regardless of how extreme it may be. And believe me, I've heard things so extreme at these rallies, they'll cut you to the bone. Give them a platform. You challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate and give you a platform. Uh, so, so let me take away a couple things and distill them here. Face-to-face is best. It's really practical. Face-to-face is best. Not, not text, not social media. Face-to-face is best because you're actually communicating then. You're actually talking then. It's the hardest thing to do, but it's the best way to do it. You're dealing with a person, not an avatar. And if you care about being respected by others, the only way to really demonstrate respect for others is to sit down with them face to face to hear them out. Another thing, listen with sympathetic ears. I mean, what he says here, I've heard things that... I can barely stand, but I listen. James exhorts us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You're going to hear things that will challenge you, that will test you, that will make you want to respond. But there's wisdom in listening and seeking to understand. I tell my people from time to time, as long as I have lived now, and it's not as long as some of you might think, so just leave it at that. As long as I've lived, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the people that we consider evil in the world are not what we think they are. Let me explain. We, we tend to, and I think this is kind of a cultural thing, we tend to treat evil people like James Bond villains or Star Wars villains. They're just these these evil, crooked, twisted people who get up in the morning and say, how can I bring hell on earth today? How can I just destroy everything? Beginning with my wife and kids and my pet and my food. I want a lousy meal. That'll get me started. I want my car to break down. I want all that's bad and the opposite of good for my life and everyone else today. I, I would submit that very few people operate that way. In fact, what you find is that even the most wicked of people often do what they do for the most altruistically good that that we can actually identify with. And and I'm willing to stand by that. I'm willing to say that you you come up with someone, you come up with an example, and I can see how that person or those individuals might act out of similar uh, passions, desires, values that we would. I love my family. I love my country. I want to be safe. I want my kids to be safe. I don't want to suffer like my ancestors did. And it unfortunately comes out as wickedness that hurts and harms a lot of people, but it's done for very different reasons than what we tend to impute on them. So listen with sympathetic ears. Treat everyone with gentleness and respect, even when you don't believe they deserve it. I mean, Paul tells us as much. Lord's servants must be gentle, 
careful. Prayerfully and lovingly speak the truth. I, I love that sentence. You challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. Know your stuff, but do it with prayerfulness and love towards these people. You're seeking to restore them. Punish them. And then lastly, patience. These things take time. Here, here's, here's the punchline to the Daryl Davis story. You challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate and give you a platform. Now, he's talking about conversations that he had with a man who had become the highest level official in the U.S. for the KKK. So he and I would sit down and listen to one another over a period of time, and the cement that held his ideas together began to get cracks in it. And then it began to crumble. Then it fell apart. So in the, in the what, 24 years, 34 years? No, 83. What am I saying? 34 years. How's my math? That's right, 34. Okay. In the four, 34 years that he's been doing this, he has accumulated in his house a collection of hoods and flags from KKK members and officials who've renounced the KKK because of his friendship with them. At his wedding, in which he married a white woman, he had friends from the KKK in attendance, some of whom had crossed over, some of whom who still, hold, still held on to their ideas, but were willing to be there because that's Daryl. We know Daryl. We're here to celebrate this wedding, even though we are fundamentally opposed to it. That's a remarkable testimony to seeking to make peace out of love for your enemy. So, in fact, when he gets charged by his fellow, uh, fellow blacks, why do you do this? You're such a sellout. You're an Uncle Tom and all that. He, he, his comeback is, how many of you have changed or turned KKK members from the KKK? I've got a house full of their gear. How's it working out for you? Usually the conversation dies at that point. Which leads to the last point. Peacemaking displays our sonship, our daughtership to Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, Jesus gives blessings with each one of these points, both to encourage us, but also to make a statement. In each of these things, and it's, it's when you set them together, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All these things all down. These are hard things that he is saying, when you do these things, you are blessed, you are happy. But also there's a future blessing here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You'll be happy in doing this because this is the right thing to do. This is what you are called to do. You are walking in obedience to God, and obedience ought to bring joy to every Christian. But look at this example of Daryl Davis. Well, what's the testimony of what he's doing? How can someone like him do this unless he knows God? There's the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. In being peacemakers, your relationship to God, your connection to God as his son, as his daughter, will be evident. This is, this is essential 
discipleship. This is essential identity in Christ, that we love and value and pursue peacemaking. And in doing so, we will give in our actions an undeniable testimony of who we are to the world around us. The fact that this story of Daryl Davis is being picked up in the Atlantic Monthly, which is not a Christian journal, so far as I'm aware, Business Weekly, uh, several other uh, secular publications in addition to Christianity Today, bears testimony to that. They are all astounded. How can you do this? Because he's a son of God. So my prayer for you, for me, as we seek to follow Christ, is that we do not neglect the aspects of calling that we find difficult that we, before God, confess our fears, confess our doubts, confess our bitterness, all those things which keep us from Him, and that we renew and rededicate ourselves, not only to following Christ in general, but to being peacemakers. It's one of the highest and holiest callings that Christ has laid on our shoulders in this short life that He's given us.